It was like, oh, Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 13th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Neil. Hi, Jeff. How is everyone in L.A.? Everyone's good. Everyone's well. Everyone, um, you know, is getting geared up for the NFL season. And when I say everyone, I mean no one. Literally no one. Team went to the Super Bowl. No one cares. Well, they probably care more about the Rams than the Chargers, at least. The Rams can say that. Yes, they have slightly more attention, but still minimal attention. Well, this past weekend, Simone Biles took home her sixth all-around gold in the U.S. Gymnastics Championships. And we, we have to talk about exactly what Simone Biles did at that championship. Because, you know, winning for her is old hat. It's how she won that is particularly mind-blowing this time. Simone made history at the championships, debuting two never-before-completed skills in women's gymnastics. On the beam, she landed a double-double dismount. That's two back tucks with two full twists. But on the floor in her opening tumbling pass, she landed the first ever ever for a woman triple-double, a high-flying double back tuck with three full twists. So that's one more twist than there was flip. So she twisted one and a half times for every time she flipped. Yeah, all of these I had to watch the slow-mo yeah, just yeah. to like understand anything about what had happened. It was like she runs up. This was on the floor exercise. She like runs at a full sprint, jumps up like two times her height uh, in the air, and then like flips a bunch too fast <laughs> for an eye to see and then lands it perfectly. And you're just like... Okay, uh, I'm going to need some time to process Yeah, this. exactly. <laughs> um, Biles is the first woman to land this trick in competition, only the third athlete ever. Gymnastics tricks are rated on a scale from A to I, with A being the easiest, so still something I can't do. But... Oh, the, the classic A to I yeah, grading scale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Simone's triple-double is widely considered a J on that scale, so not even on the scale. Wait, so why is <laughs> Wait a minute. They had to invent they extra, ha- <laughs> yes! extra letters? She's making them change their whole grading system. That is how good she is. They do it. Wait, did you just say invent extra letters? (laughs) (laughs) The letters were there. The letter existed, but it just was like waiting for Simone Biles to come along. Exactly. Jay didn't have a purpose until Simone came along. (laughs) And she lands the triple double in October at the Worlds. It'll get named after her. There are also already two moves called the Biles. The Biles on the vault is. A Yurchenko half, and I, I don't need to explain what a Yurchenko half is to you guys, right? <laughs> no, right, of course no, not. yeah. Uh, I mean, everyone knows that's a round off on the springboard connected to a half turn onto the vault um, with two twists. And the biles on the floor, so she, there's already, that's going to be confusing, actually, if there's two biles on the floor. This is going to have to be the biles 2.0. The original biles was the double layout with a half turn. 
And there's also the foster, which is when you just lie down on the floor and take a nap. I invented that one. You were the first one to do that in, in international competition? Yeah. I mean, eventually every move will be named after her, right? Doing gymnastics will yeah, be called. Yeah, will be doing the, the Biles. The Biles. Yeah. <laughs> the Biles maneuvers. Biles maneuvers. Well, uh, suffice it to say she won the all-around with a score of 118.5 points. 4.95 points over her nearest competitor, silver medalist Sunisa Lee, and Grace McCollum took the bronze. Biles placed first on floor, beam, and vault. On her weakest event, bars, she finished third. Such a disappointment. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and this was also, it, it is true that she has never entered the U.S. National Championships as a senior uh, level competitor and not won gold in the all-around, it's right? It's amazing. Like she has a perfect record uh, in in the all around uh, of golds. I think I read somewhere that she has won every competition she's entered since 2013. That's insane. So Simone is 22 years old, which is old. That's old. That for a is, gymnast. Yes, which makes us feel old. No, yeah, for sure. Because it's crazy how quickly you reach your peak in uh, gymnastics and then are like over the hill. So. Uh, yeah, being 22, she'll be 23 next summer for the Olympics. So just as a comparison, Allie Reisman was considered old when she was in her second Olympics and she was 22. The The two girls that you mentioned, Sunisa Lee and Grace McCallum, who finished behind Biles in the national championships, they're both 16. And this particular event is almost always dominated by teenagers just as a comparison reagan smith who won in 2017 when simone biles was hurt she was 17 when she won the two previous winners before simone started her run of dominance in 2013 so jordan weber and rebecca bross both of them were also 17 when they uh when they won the all-around gold and that really is part of a long-standing run that from 1972 until 2017 Every U.S. women's all-around champion was a teenager. That includes some Simone Biles championships in there. But she won the event at age 21 in 2018. And then, of course, this year at age 22. So those were the first time that someone age 20 or above had won this event going back to, like, the 70s. Wow. So not only is she unusually dominant, but, you know, we talk about aging curves for athletes often when we're kind of analyzing performance. And so the, she's having like, I don't know, Barry Bonds in 2003 or whatever type of se season in terms of just, you know, you're not supposed to be this good at this age, even though it sounds like an age that would be a precocious young player in uh, other sports. 22 is actually really old for a gymnast. It makes it even more amazing that Simone Biles seems to be getting better doing more incredible things the older she is at the, at an age when most gymnasts retire. And she's like, you know what? I'm just going to remake the sport in my image. And uh, that's what I'm going to do for my next year. So yeah. that's cool. Good luck with the Biles maneuvers. <laughs> yeah. Have fun, guys. <laughs> All right. On today's show, we will turn a critical eye to fantasy football. We'll look at what's in store for another English Premier League title race. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
We're less than a month out from the first week of the NFL regular season, which means it's peak time to be obsessing over your fantasy football drafts. Speaking of, Neil, what's going on with 538's league? Yeah, we still need to set it up. We have to figure yeah. out um, you know, what rules we're going to use. Should we do innovative things like uh, two quarterbacks per team? You know, yeah. It's a passing league, they no, say. No kickers, maybe? Yeah. Uh, 538, we, we kind of had the brand, uh, especially when our former colleague Ben Morris uh, wrote for us, of being like staunchly pro-kicker. So that would be a little out of step with, with our traditions, but, you know... We maybe, can change. Maybe no running back. That'll be the real That the is real very on brand for us. <laughs> yeah, it would be right. Now. That would be the first. Is that the, would that be the first fantasy league that ever had dropped no run, running backs? Banned running backs. That would be amazing. We'll have to, we'll have to talk about that. Well, we're going to spare you another exhaustive list of wide receivers and running backs we swear no one else is thinking of, and instead take a look at the strategy and tactics that make fantasy football what it is. Here's Danny Heifetz deliberating over strategies on the Ringer's Dynasty Football Podcast. Matthew Berry has an excellent rule that he helped coin for the first round that we adhere to, which is yeah. you can't win your draft in the first round, but you can lose it. It's yeah. part of like this broader philosophy that fantasy football is about minimizing risk, which, I mean, that's your fantasy, right? Risk minimization. That's, that's fun. Jeff, is risk minimization the correct approach to fantasy? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, anyone who took Le'Veon Bell last year knows this. That, yeah, you can lose really easily with your first pick. So I do think, like, the safe, the high floor um, guys are, are are the ones to target in the first couple rounds. By the way, I was looking back at my draft last year, and I know the first four, five picks were great, and then the rest of them were Literally, I, I I don't even think these guys are in the NFL, these players I was taking in the later rounds last year. And my team was still pretty okay from those, you know, first four, five picks, you know, getting Devontae Adams and Kelsey and, and a bunch of good guys like that. That can be enough, you know, and then you fill in the gaps later. Yeah, because if you nail those those top guys, they kind of carry your team and it's easy to win. Uh, I think it's worse when you get down into the dregs and you're just like hoping to hit a home run on someone or, you know, hope that maybe a couple weeks in you can pick up, be first on the waiver priority for whichever running back has just had like a 120 yard game or something as a, as a starter. Uh, and so that's when it's like you either win by getting lu- super lucky with those or super lucky in the sense that all of your like, stars that you picked on draft day stay healthy and are productive right well and in the later rounds you pick up handcuffs right and then do the terrible thing of hoping that the running back for which that guy is a handcuff gets hurt because that's how we view fantasy football now which is sort of now um, yeah i feel like it's been that way since day one our de facto fantasy football writer mike salfino is very anti-handcuff for the record, Sarah. Why? He says, don't get handcuffs, get other people's handcuffs. Meaning, don't put all your eggs in one team's basket and, and try to get starting running backs on other teams and hope your guy stays healthy rather than, you know, just covering your own bases. Are there different approaches to that risk minimization, whether you're in a standard league or a points per reception league? Or is it always just the same? You should think about high floor guys early and take risks later. Is that just true across league setups do you think Jeff? yeah no i think the the nuances between like ppr and 0.5 ppr and standard that that comes down to more you know 
the the touchdowns like uh, standards are just way more touchdown centric so you have to start looking at that and of course as neil knows touchdowns are fairly random they're not that sticky year to year i mean like you'll see like trends like you know julio jones doesn't is the best receiver in football but doesn't catch a touchdown pass for like four seasons which are weird but then even that changes he started catching touchdowns last year but in terms of the general philosophy of of risk i mean i i think the first rounds in all formats is to minimize risk. This year, it's like particularly hard because you've got two running backs who are supposed to go very high who don't have, who are possibly holding out in Ezekiel Elliott and Melvin Gordon. So, if it was me, I don't, I, I don't like take any guy with any uncertainty, and and really that also applies to like coming off a knee surgery or a history of you know injury. It's just like it's such a red flag. It's not even worth risking, especially in the first couple of rounds. Later on, you know, why not? Because I'm going to cut half these guys anyway. Well, one of the major critiques you see about fantasy football is that it's contributed to the dehumanization of players, which is sort of what I was getting at when I was talking about hoping uh, first string running back gets hurt because you have their handcuff. Or just Jeff's comment about cutting everyone also, yes, you know, right. instantaneously. <laughs> Neil, is there something about how fantasy is set up that contributes to that? At least when you're following a team, you get to know the players on that team and you watch them every week in the context of something larger than just, you know, the numbers that they're putting up in a given week. And so you humanize them more that way, I think. But fantasy, I think, has caused people to just totally divorce these players from you know anything about them except how many points they can give you and this this applies to fellow players there was a great clip steve smith the the former wide receiver uh was was openly asking whether he should start dj moore in front of dj moore (laughs) and 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 told him you know if you give me two points i'm gonna slap the shit out of you (laughs) so it's like even players sort of uh you know kind of know that it's it's that way and then of course there's todd Gurley, who openly has the disdain for fantasy football players and will troll them by you know not running in for a touchdown just to spite his owners. <laughs> so that is a dynamic you're seeing emerge. I think these players do get annoyed when they, they're hearing a lot of comments about fantasy, you know, walking in and out of the tunnel and, and that kind of thing. And frankly, I've been in an NFL game, and when if you just kind of like, maybe it's just the Jets games, but if you just kind of like tune your ears into what everyone else is talking about, and you just hear, oh, David Johnson scored a touchdown, wow got a field goal from you know it's just like kind of annoying because it really is all people are talking about even while they're at a live football game god forbid you know you're at home and you're watching red zone which is just nothing but tell me what someone did that's relevant in fantasy right now and then do it again for nine straight hours right i have actually declined to go to a live football game because i was more interested in my fantasy team and also, I mean, the game was probably going to be, it was a Jets game, so it wasn't going to be great. Um, Jeff was probably there. Maybe, maybe. I might have been there. Jeff, last week you regaled us with your better version of fantasy soccer. How should we change fantasy football? Is there a way, a way to make it better or make it harder? You know, I don't have as many complaints. I think it works. I've enjoyed it for quite some time. I, I am anti-kickers. I think my league, we tried to pass an initiative to, to get rid of the kickers and it was shot down. I, I'm not sure why. 
But the kicking part of it does feel kind of random. I, I remember losing one year because um, Justin Tucker had 18 points for the Ravens as the kicker, and that eliminated me single-handedly. And that really, you know, that's all about game situation. He, You know, they didn't get a first down in the red zone numerous times, and he, and he was awarded for that. So there's nothing else you'd change? I mean, should we t- think about ways to make fantasy football more similar to the actual game? Is there? Are we missing anything there, do you think? My whole thesis on the soccer thing was that it was problematic because they were trying to make it too similar to the game. I, I'm not one of these people out there interested in endorsing like individual defensive player drafts. I mean, that is a thing that people do. You know, they, they're out there drafting J.J. Watt and... Uh, that just sounds like too much. Like it's already hard enough to prepare for these drafts. I, I don't need a whole like side of the field I have to pay attention to in defense. But I think it could be a little bit more in line with the reality of how football is played and how players are valued. So for instance, you know, if you do a value based draft strategy, the top players each of the top four players last year in the NFL in fantasy were running backs, Gurley, Saquon Barkley, Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara. Then you get Patrick Mahomes at number five. He had a historic season. To get the next quarterback on the list, you have to go down to Matt Ryan at 21st in the NFL uh, in, in fantasy value. Then you go down to Ben Roethlisberger at 27th in value uh, and then you get Deshaun Watson at 31st but what I'm saying is there's a whole bunch of running backs and receivers but especially glaring are the running backs that are ahead of quarterbacks that in reality we know just based on you know think about how odds makers move the lines in response to injuries they would move them for quarterbacks and they're on record for saying that there are probably only like five non-quarterbacks at most in the entire league that would warrant any change to the Vegas line for a given game if they were out uh and they're probably none of them are running backs so it really is bizarre that we still have in in the sort of standard fantasy scoring system the most valuable players by far are running backs and then you get receivers uh you know creeping up there especially if you give out points for receptions and that is very different than the reality of football and so i don't know if the if it's just a matter of finding a scoring system that rewards quarterbacks more is that boring i don't know i mean i think the running back aspect of it makes it interesting to the extent that running backs are considered more replaceable so there's more risk involved with them they're certainly far less durable than quarterbacks so there's more risk associated with them and it sort of shakes up you know who wins or loses your fantasy league a lot more than if say Tom Brady were properly valued and if you drafted Brady you would have guaranteed huge amounts of points coming in each each week instead you've got you know, inherently you're relying on these positions that are a lot more random. So maybe that's an argument that it makes it more fun to play by divorcing it from the things that make actual football teams good, which is mostly the the value of the quarterback. Well, I think the answer is like a two-quarterback league. If you go to a two-quarterback league, all of a sudden quarterbacks are being taken all over the first round. I mean, think about it. There's usually 10 to 12 teams in a league. There's 32 starting quarterbacks. Of that 32, there's probably 20 
pretty serviceable ones, but only 12 are really going to start. So where you get to running backs, there's, let's say, you know, 30 to 40 starting running backs, and every team's got three. You know, it's it, it's supply and demand. I mean, like quarterback is a position generally where you can find a replacement or you can stream guys. But if you if you you know double the amount of quarterbacks every team is starting, you will have that. I mean, because obviously they get tons of points. But the problem is once you get around like the Philip Rivers threshold, they're kind of all the same for about you know ten quarterbacks there. So it doesn't really matter as much. There's not as much like urgency to get a really good one. Well, I guess the question though is: is that does that resemble the actual kind of? Uh, distribution of how how much these guys help their teams win in reality uh, is it just a matter of because we're using yards and touchdowns and interceptions and stats that were around 30 or more years ago we're sort of hamstrung into thinking that the sub Philip Rivers tier are sort of all interchangeable whereas if we had better metrics and I'm not saying I know what those better metrics necessarily are but if we had those, there would be more of a way to distinguish between the performance of a good but not great quarterback and a below average quarterback, uh, and and we could apply that to fantasy. Yeah, I think that's sort of the the push and pull of fantasy is keeping it simple enough to to be enjoyable to be able to count along while you're playing. You know, while you're watching. If I'm watching a game, my quarterback is you know has a certain number of yards and I know how many interceptions he's thrown and I can like calculate that while also obviously looking at it on my phone as it's happening but so that's sort of the like the fun thing for me as a fan and if we're adding in more advanced things will that still be as fun I think that does actually get to what Jeff was saying about the EPL about soccer that the more things you put in that it's harder to count the less fun it is for a fan so I think there's got to be a better way to do it that's still fun but also like uses more of the data that we know to be true about football right now and just the weights given to things like there's no reason why a passing touchdown is worth four points but a rushing and receiving touchdown is worth six points and that every you know 25 passing yards you get a point but then every 10 rushing yards you get a point these are all totally arbitrary uh, values that have it's been that way since like the 80s like these are uh, i think the the standard scoring system that they still use at places like yahoo and espn are the scoring system that's like the canonical point values going back forever so those could change but then you know it's a good point that fantasy football has been wildly successful uh and and probably the most successful of all the fantasy sports in some ways like are we Try, are we sitting here trying to fix something that's not necessarily broken? Well, that's what we do, right? <laughs> that is sort of, uh, yeah, uh, our thing. Can fantasy football be its own thing that doesn't have to resemble real football? And we can kind of accept that. I don't know. There are some things that are just inane. Like, for instance, if you play in a PPR league and let's say it's third and one and the running back like gets a first down for one yard, 
that's worth fewer points than if there's a pass to the running back and he loses four yards, <laughs> but he caught the pass, so he gets point. I mean, like, you know, there's things like that that just make no sense that will always bother me to a certain extent. I always liked the idea. I mean, they do this for baseball. I'm not sure if they do it for football, but the those, like, project score sheet type leagues where it doesn't depend on the actual real-life stats of uh, players. It's just sort of the players have... Uh, you know, suggested probabilities based a little bit on on what they've done recently, but also on their track record. Uh, and then they simulate out games against opponents. So it's like there is a version of real baseball or realistic ish baseball being played between your team and and the opponent that doesn't rely on this mishmash of stats that were compiled in bunch of different stadiums and a bunch of different games on different days and you know they probably could come up with something like that for football where you're simulating the actual games themselves in a realistic way but the performance of the players in real life also affects the players ratings i guess at that point we're just talking about madden <laughs> right <yeah. laughs> that's what i was gonna say <laughs> let's just have a madden competition every sunday yeah why not fantasy. all right well let's move on but before that neil would love to tell you all about this week's sponsor linkedin hiring it's not as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make professional connections and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard and soft skills to meet your role requirements. LinkedIn does all the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business the way Patrick Mahomes transformed the Chiefs last year. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash pain. That's right. It's my last name, P-A-I-N-E. Again, that's linkedin.com slash pain, P-A-I-N-E, to get $50 off your first job post and maybe your own Patrick Mahomes-esque hire. Terms and conditions apply. The 2019-2020 English Premier League is officially underway. Last year, we saw a historically close title race. Liverpool, still in pursuit of its first Premier League title, finished just one point behind repeat champions Manchester City. Though Liverpool did win the Champions League title over my beloved Tottenham. Heading into this new season, Liverpool and City remain the favorites, and we're expecting another close fight. Here's Steve Nichol on ESPN FC making the case for Man City. But yes, City... I still have a a stronger squad than Liverpool. You could say that they've actually got stronger since last year and considering they won the title, it's theirs to lose and Liverpool's to try and take that extra step. Neil, what does our model say about the Premier League race? Is Man City the favorite again? They are indeed. So we give them a a 61% chance of, of winning. They are the highest rated team according to the Soccer Power Index. They have the best offense in uh, the EPL and also the best defense. So all of that kind of adds up to a shockingly high probability of winning. We really think that there's almost no chance that they finish any lower than third or really even, I mean, second. They have a, like I said, 61% chance of finishing first and then a 24% chance of finishing second. So not much room for uh, anything below that. But then, you know, Liverpool is relatively close to them in terms of SPI. So Man City has a 94.4 SPI. That's on a... uh, zero to 100 scale and then Liverpool 
the second best team has a 92.4. So that's kind of a small gap when you consider that the third best team, Tottenham, Sarah's team, and nominally my team, has an SPI of 85.3. So massive difference and drop off between number two and number three, uh, but still Liverpool has a just a 27% chance in our model of, of actually winning the EPL. What did the first weekend of games or the friendly Community Shield matchup between these two teams a week ago tell us about what to expect from this rivalry? In these opening matchups, I mean, it, it is also sort of an open question as to how much we can learn about single soccer matches. And I'm always amazed even when we get into the World Cup, that for a sport with so little scoring that the better team tends to win with a good amount of frequency. Well, we're actually in a talk later in the show in the rabbit hole about baseball upsets. Uh, and it's a game, baseball is a game with more scoring than soccer. And yet, according to all the models, and just if you sort of look at the, the results of games, the favorites in soccer tend to win far more often than they do uh, in baseball. And so I don't know why that is necessarily. I think there's a lot of things going on about who is controlling a soccer game that are not picked up in the scoreline necessarily. Right. And, and advanced stats are trying to do that work when you talk about possession or you know further things like expected goals, expected assists, progressive passes, all of those things that are happening in a soccer game that are you know, sort of, we don't think about them in terms of the scoreline, but they're all helping to tell the story. And so, you know, these two teams, City and Liverpool, are the best, all of those things, too. So that probably um, goes a long way to why we have them rated so highly, why the Soccer Power Index thinks so much of them. And they really are. They're returning. They're very good teams from last year with slight tweaks, slight improvements that, you know, should get them pretty far, one would think. Beyond the top two teams, there's an interesting dynamic among what we've typically considered the top tier in the EPL, those that have been part of the big six for the past couple of years, and then the middle tier teams. So our model, which uses that SPI, showed a big gap going into the season between City and Liverpool and Chelsea and Tottenham. That was a gap of about seven points, as Neil said earlier. But then there's another big gap of about five points to that next batch of teams, Manchester United and Arsenal. Now, Everton, which is often just on the outside looking in at the big six, is only one point behind Arsenal. And then Leicester and Wolverhampton are just a couple of points further back. So the gulfs there really are between the top two and everybody else, right? But then three and four, and then this group that could all compete for for the fifth and sixth spots, but also the third and fourth spots. So you could see some a real shakeup in the table for the first time in a while. We haven't had anyone outside of the current big six finish among the top six spots since Leicester won it all in 2016, which, of course, was a shock Talk of its about own. upsets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they didn't settle for just getting six. They were like, let's just win it all. The season could be, even though I think some people are thinking, oh, it's sort of boring, City, Liverpool, same thing. It's just a repeat of last year. There could be some really interesting things happen in the world of the top soccer teams. I think that sort of shows how amazing it was that Leicester won in 2016 you know, everyone, you know, points to that 5,001 odds they had, which is a little misleading right. because they really didn't have a one in 5,000 chance of winning in a 20 team league. It was just a terrible line. 
And the terrible line was a reflection of the public opinion, as all odds and all lines are a reflection of the public opinion. Don't forget that. That no one else outside of this elite group could win that league. So why not make the line 5,001, try to get some people to bet on it? And they were burned. So it, it, in many ways, it kept people honest. And of course, it's obviously gone back to, to you know the same handful of teams winning. But just showing that it was possible, I think, was very big for the sport in terms of giving fans hope and giving everyone hope, which will all all hopes will be diminished by October. But at least right now, the, the dream is alive because of Leicester. Yeah, well, when you think about the history of the Premier League, which started with the 1992-93 season, there have been only six winners. It's Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Leicester, and Blackburn, and that's it. Nobody else in all those years. And so, and you know, there really have not been many teams that have even gone into a season thinking they had a great chance. So Leicester's winning, I think, did a huge thing for the league. Now someone else needs to actually win again. <laughs> someone different. Come on, Spurs. The beauty of it is that there are all these like competitions within the bigger competition, trying to make it to the level where you qualify for Europa League, Champions League, trying to just stay up in the Premier League is is often more exciting later in the year. So it isn't just like, you know, another sport where winning is everything. There's many rewards existing in the league, which will sort of add excitement in lieu of playoffs. A realistic chance of actually winning the championship and and uh, having your hopes of doing that at all dashed, you know, extremely early into the season. You can settle for some consolation tournaments. I mean, what's wrong with that? I think, well, this goes to my theory about really all sports, there's no shame in rooting for a team that can't win at all. And there are lots of other things along the way that make sports fun. My college football team is not going to win at all, but I'm still going to enjoy the season and be happy when they knock someone off or whatever. And, uh, but that's you okay. are going to watch those 538 uh, college football playoff odds like a hawk. Well, and and note to me every single <laughs> week when they go up or down. Uh, but it's not that's not for, connected for to that's not connected to an actual belief that they're actually going to make the, the playoff. It's more like, well, look, it's my team and they're oh, doing look. well. <laughs> It's they not. A, they they're not going to win. I know 2% that. 2% chance of making the playoffs. They were on the list, Neil. That's all that list, matters. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I think we can leave that there. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories. Some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Start us off, Neil. So on Saturday, the Astros demolished the lowly Baltimore Orioles by score of 23 to 2. Jordan Alvarez, a rookie uh, who's been just tearing it up for the Strohs, hit three home runs. Houston had six in total. Houston's eighth straight win, Baltimore's fifth straight loss. And uh, unfortunately, it seemed for the Orioles, they had to face the Astros again on Sunday to close up that three-game series. And Houston was sending Justin Verlander. He's third in the AL in pitching war with 4.6 war. Probably the favorite to win the Cy Young, if not him, then it would be uh, probably his teammate Garrett Cole. They were sending him to the mound against Asher Wojciechowski, who had been cut by uh, the Astros several years before, latched on with the Orioles eventually. He had 0.1 career war. Coming off that 23-2 demolition, the betting markets really responded to this mismatch. They made the Astros 
minus 462 favorites, which works out to an implied win probability of about 82% before you adjust for the juice. And that made Houston the biggest road favorites in a baseball game since at least 2005. That seemed to be as far back as some of these um, databases of, of odds went for this in the news reports that I saw. The 538 model wasn't that much more optimistic about the Orioles, gave them a 25% chance of winning, made it the seventh big, biggest mismatch of the season on paper, and uh, the worst odds for any home team in any game this year. So the game started. Baltimore got out to an early lead. Houston uh, came back, settled in with a 3-2 lead in the, uh, into the fifth inning. But then Baltimore showed some life. They scored three in the fifth and sixth to take a 5-3 to three lead. Uh, and then it seemed like the usual Orioles nonsense was going to take over late in the game. So Houston pulled within a run in the seventh. And then in the top of the ninth, they let three runs score on a little league home run by Michael Brantley that was really helped by it was a it was a triple plus an error and it was an extremely ludicrous error by Orioles right fielder Anthony Santander who grabbed the ball and lost his grip on it as he was making the throw back into the infield. He tossed it off the adjacent outfield wall, so he's in the corner uh, with his back to the actual outfield wall, and he just threw it straight into the wall along foul territory, and it just sort of bounced around. Everyone scored, including Brantley, and so it looked like Houston would win, uh, after all, as this overwhelming favorite. But then, literally against all odds, Baltimore <laughs> rallied in the bottom of the ninth, and they won the game on a two-out walk-off home run by Rio Ruiz, securing a historic upset. So by Vegas's odds, it was probably the biggest since, again, 2005, biggest upset in any baseball game. It was also one of the biggest upsets since 2000, according to 538's ELO. Uh, it was the 15th biggest in any game since then. Uh, it was the biggest upset of 2019, easily. Oddly, the number one upset since 2000, according to ELO, was also pulled off by the Orioles <laughs> last September. They beat the Red Sox in Boston with Chris Sale starting. We only gave them a 19% chance of winning. They laughed at those odds just as they did this <laughs> I, past weekend. I suppose if you are consistently... You know, over several years, Overwhelming, the worst team, yeah, yeah right. and have, underdog. You're gonna you're gonna have some pretty big upsets from time to time, just right? by virtue just, of yeah having so many chances, yeah, putting of, themselves in the Cinderella, in the Cinderella position, like really ready to go. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's like if you if you want to, no one will remember all the terrible games in which the Orioles had next to no chance and just and lost. lost. Yeah. But they will remember the games that they were overwhelming underdogs and won the game we should say it's just one well, one game this season this season least. yeah <laughs> yeah because despite that one amazing game houston still won two of the three games in the series they beat the orioles by an aggregate score of 33 to 12 so it really was a one-off kind of upset but we wanted to look deeper into the rabbit hole for expand it out past a game and, and look at series that were surprising so the most surprising series Results of the season by ELO belong to the San Francisco Giants. They swept the Colorado Rockies in a four-game series in July. Now, the Rockies, they're not a great team, but the Giants went into that as the ninth-worst team in baseball. None of their good starters were scheduled to start. They were supposed to face two of Colorado's two best starters, John Gray and Herman Marquez, in the bookend games of that series, they never had more than a 46% chance of winning any of the games. And two of the games, they had under a 40% chance, and they still swept. 
That was an impressive, wow. uh, the most impressive single series results of the season. But what if we looked at an entire course of a team's games against one opponent in the whole se- uh, season so far? Well, the biggest difference between actual and expected wins, according to ELO, for one team against any other opponent belongs to the Astros against the Mariners. The Astros have gone 12 and 1 against Seattle this year. Our model would have only expected them to win 8.3 games, similar to this Cleveland has gone 12 and 1 against the lowly Detroit Tigers, but that's not really surprising. It's uh, yes, they have exceeded our model's expectations, but that's mainly they were favored to win a lot of these games, but then they just won way more. But if you single out teams that were unexpectedly dominant against opponents that they were supposed to lose to, the 2019 crown goes to the Blue Jays against the Oakland A's. So our model thinks that in the six games Toronto has played against Oakland, they would win only 2.7 of those. Instead, the Jays have gone a perfect 6-0 and against yeah. Oakland so far. Those teams always will be linked by the 2014 Josh Donaldson trade. So you'd think Toronto would be done humiliating the A's, but they are continuing that this season. And uh, even after the... Uh, the the win on Sunday, uh, Baltimore has only won two of its six games against the Astros, uh, but they got that one. And somehow that the the two and four record is still better than Elo would expect, and it's far better than what the Orioles have done against the Yankees so far this season, which is a whole other rabbit hole unto itself. I think <laughs> the Orioles pitching staff has had a has had a rough go of it. It's over been the past couple of days difficult for them. <laughs> especially after arguably the worst throw in baseball history. The only other thing that comes to mind as a contender is uh, some of those Chuck Knobloch throws, the one of which um, sailed into the crowd and hit Keith Olbermann's mom in the head. I forgot about that. That is a true story that happened. Didn't he have a couple that just... That he just spiked into the ground also? That class of throw, like the the Carly Rae Jepsen pregame uh, first pitch type, you know, just throw it straight into the ground. <laughs> Those are the only ones that are really in the same don't conversation. Be, don't you talk bad about Carly Rae. I, you know, I, I enjoy her music. 50, 50 Cent. Not her Let's pitching. make fun of 50 Cent. The Better. 50 Cent one was, <laughs> His throw was worse. really wild. <laughs> it's interesting to talk about single game upsets in baseball because it's not really a sport where you talk about single game upsets because the ceiling for that is so low. I mean, like even the best pitcher in the league can come out and like not have his best game. And the other team all of a sudden has a chance. Whereas like football, when USC lost to Stanford in in 2007 as a 40 point favorite, they don't even post money lines on those games because it's just ridiculous. I mean, you're, betting a dollar to win pennies um so it's not even on offer um and i think you know whereas in baseball really everyone has a chance it's it's remarkable that they made that line that high to begin with yeah it's really telling i mean even that boston at home you know boston last year so the 108 win future world series champion red sox with chris sale on the mound they still only only had an 82% chance of winning that game. Uh, you think about in the NBA produces a number of 
incredibly lopsided lines, especially when the Warriors were were at their peak. So this kind of also could be in the same conversation as that game when the Lakers beat the uh, the Warriors in 2016, uh, which was the biggest upset in history, according to ESPN's Basketball Power Index. The the Warriors went into that game of the Lakers with a 93% win probability. So, yeah, it does kind of tell you about the sports that are more deterministic. You see the higher probabilities for the favorites and then more of a chance for upsets to happen. When, when the when the lower-rated uh, team wins, it, it looks more colossal. It's just it's my favorite thing about baseball. It's a long season. Anything can happen. Any and- single game you watch, yep. you could go to a game, get a ticket, Pick it at random. It could be the best against the worst team. And there's still like a reasonably decent chance that you will see either team win. Yeah. Isn't that cool? It is cool. cool. Baseball, the best sport. That's my takeaway. It does make it probably the worst betting sport, though. That I can imagine. I've never figured out how to bet on baseball. And so I just don't. Yeah, I mean, it's all all the lines are based pretty much entirely on the pitcher, you know, as we see with the Verlander matchup and... You never get like crazy lines or, you know, huge upsets. Like, for instance, you know, a football game where a team's getting 28 points and wins. So baseball and golf, I think, are the things we've established on this podcast and, that you don't bet on. And Heisman Trophy. Oh, and Heisman Trophy. Right, yeah. I, I love the way I brought up the biggest college football upset and got away with it. <laughs> uh, Stanford, USC, folks. That was it. Yep, the biggest. Nothing yeah. that ever happened. I can't remember any. In something called Appalachian State type <laughs> game. We would have just let you have that too. And I was just prepping myself for the retort and it never came. So I, I had to offer it up myself. <laughs> Appalachian State was getting fewer points, even though the line wasn't posted with the whole FBS, FCS thing, was getting fewer points than Stanford was in that game. Wait, did you have a bet on that game? The Michigan Appalachian State game? Yeah. No, no. I was at a wedding and guess what? That wedding was ruined <laughs> for I, for both you and the bride and groom. I would imagine that being at a wedding doesn't actually stop you that often from placing bets on football games. Oh, no, definitely not. I've definitely come out of a wedding reception to check in on, on, on see what's going on. Did you make bets during your own wedding? Did I do it on my own wedding? No, I got to say no, just in case my wife listens. <laughs> That seems like a good place to leave this. Thank you, guys. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Also, review and rate the show if you can. It really helps other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.